Book 12 of Men and Arms. Turnus knew how this was going to end. He could see his men flagging, his friends defeated, the battle against them and their spirits dwindling. He knew what he needed to do. Now or never, all eyes were on him. This was his fight, his future. Just as a lion in the fields of Carthage, surrounded by hunters and not yet pushed to retaliate until he has been wounded and then revels in it, in the physical manifestation of rage, tossing out his mane and wrenching out the spear in his side before opening its mouth to roar, just so did the lust for war and revenge seethe through Turnus. He turned wildly to Latinus. I keep no man waiting. This is it, Latinus. Put it in writing. Either I'll destroy Aeneas and send him down to Hades where he belongs, or he'll destroy me and he can take Lavinia and all of you with her. It doesn't have to be this way, Turnus, Latinus replied gently. You are a brave and fine young man. You still have your father's kingdom. You still have the kingdoms you've won in fairly in combat. I can help you if you need any extra gold. There are so many other girls out there who would relish the opportunity to call you their husband. Don't throw it all away. Think about it. You have so much potential. If I am honest with you, Turnus, you must excuse the mistakes of an old man. All the prophecies forbade me to promise Lavinia to anyone, but I was blinded by my love for you. I was blinded by my love for my wife. But these mere feelings are of no consequence to the gods. You have seen firsthand the suffering my mistakes have caused. I have already accepted the Trojans and our fate. I have had to. Can't you? If not for my sake or your own, then for your father. Turnus was so enraged he could hardly speak. I will not give up my kingdom, my wife, my right to some foreigner who thinks he can just saunter in here and take like whatever he fancies just because his mother happens to be a goddess he's no more special than you or me i won't allow him to take my glory too turnus darling please Amata turned to him now, the one man she had chosen to entrust her daughter to. Do not speak such things. Look at me. Look at me. You are my one hope. Do you care nothing for my feelings or those of Lavinia? The moment you die, you can be sure I will too. I shall never live to be a slave. Lavinia, 
who is perpetually flushed during this book, makes her major debut by bursting into tears when she hears her mother pledging suicide. Her skin was like when ivory has been stained by red dye or when white lilies are crowded by scarlet roses and take on their colour. Turnus looked at Lavinia. He loved her. He truly loved her. But he had loved battle, glory, more. Don't say such things, Marta. It's cruel. I can't control when I die, but I'll do so with dignity. Idmon, take this message to Aeneas. Tell him when dawn breaks tomorrow, as soon as Aurora skirts the sky, we can meet. No armies, no men, just me and him. His blood, or mine, will determine who wins Lavinia. Turnus then rushed back to the palace and called for his horses. They'd been a gift for his grandfather, and they were gorgeous, white as snow and swifter than the wind. His impatient charioteers were tending to them. Turnus threw on his armour eagerly, the helmet with its red crests and the sword made by Hephaestus for his father. He snatched up his spear from a column in the heart of the palace and held it out. The time has come. You have never failed me, my weapon. Help me destroy that effeminate Phrygian. Help me make him suffer, make him dirty that perfumed hair in the mud. Like a bull pouring at the sand, anticipating its first battle, so did Turnus's rage gather within him as he rehearsed for the battle ahead. Aeneas, similarly, was preparing. He had polished his armour and there was a fury of a kind within him, but it was a fury for his people more than for himself alone. He spent the day reassuring his friends of the peace that was sure to come and tried to comfort Eulus that he would be coming home. He promised. He made sure a message was returned to Latinus, agreeing to the peace terms. The next morning, everyone and their mother, literally, flocked to the battlefield. The armies were there, even though they weren't meant to be fighting. I mean, can we all see where this is going, guys? Just saying. All the great leaders were lingering, flecks of purple and gold amongst the crowd. They waited. But this was all too much for Juno, of course. She'd got prime position sitting at the very top of what the Romans knew as the Alban Mount. Juturna, the sister of Turnus, who we've kind of met briefly, and she's now, like, sort of a goddess um, of lakes and rivers, because basically it was like a pity offering from Jupiter after he raped her. Um, anyway, we'll just leave that one there. Well, Juturna was sitting beside Juno. Juturna, darling, you remember how well I've treated you since you slept with my husband. Well, seeing as I've let that one slide, which, trust me, does not happen often, perhaps you could do me a small favour. 
You know I've done my best to help Turnus. The fates apparently have had their say. My dear husband has reminded me of my place. But there is nothing to stop you. Jeterna began to cry at just the thought, and Juno rolled her eyes. Oh, for Joe's sake, do you shut up. Get your act together and save your brother, or at the very least, destroy the flimsy peace treaty they've drawn up. It's pathetic, honestly. As Jeterna headed, sniffling, towards the mortals, Juno wondered what Jupiter could have possibly seen in her. Our protagonists then rolled in on their chariots. Turnus and Latinus, the grandson of the sun god, looked pretty decent, but let's face it, they've got no competition with Aeneas and Virgil's eyes. The divine founder of the Roman race with his son, the second hope of the empire, and the priest, which was basically the cherry on top here, at his side. I mean, there's a bit of blatant favouritism going on here, isn't there, guys? But anyway, the entirely unequally matched leaders made all the customary sacrifices and offerings to the gods. Aeneas, the most pious man in the history of the world like ever, stepped forward. Dear Juno and Hyperion, Jupiter as well, um, but mainly Juno, I don't know why you hate me. I'm really sorry for whatever it is that I've ever done to annoy you. I know it could be a number of things, um, but I beg you, and uh, Mars too, if you don't mind, uh, just please, could you be a bit kinder towards us? If you're so keen for me to fail, then I promise to leave the Latins in peace, but if I am victorious, which I kind of have a gut feeling that I might be, um, just, you know, fingers crossed then hear me pledge a treaty between our two nations. I'll take Lavinia, even though I don't really need her actually, and for all I know she might be made out of wood, the women here have been kind of strange, but anyway, I'll take her and name my new city after her, even though I don't really want to be king, and I'm actually kind of tired and I just want a quiet life, but okay, um, thank you for listening. Latinus let an awkward silence settle before moving forward. He was tempted just to say ditto, but as the king he felt he ought to be a bit more eloquent, especially after that shambles from Aeneas. By all the gods in the sea and the sky and the stars, hear me promise that I confirm no Italians will ever break this treaty. No power can change my will just as this sceptre, he brandished the sceptre he was holding, just as this wooden sceptre, which was once a tree, has been now set in bronze, yes this has worked, it's good, it's a good analogy, and will never change. I mean, this all seems fine and dandy, but the Latins were having none of it. The disparity between Aeneas, a hardened warrior despite his suffering emotional state that only we really are privy to, and Turnus, basically a hot-headed teenager, was overwhelming. Juturna sensed the growing uncertainty and seized upon it. She slipped easily into the disguise of Camus, 
a courageous Vertullian from a heroic family, and began to whisper rumours throughout the soldiers. This isn't fair, lads, is it? How weak we are, how cowardly, to let one man fight in our name, to let one man die for us. We can all prove ourselves, surely. It's all right for Turnus if he's defeated. He'll get all the glory from our fame. But what will we get? Slavery to these foreign masters? I think not. All of the men suddenly began to feel a great injustice was being done to Turnus. And then, to top it all off and seal the deal, Jaterna did perhaps the cruelest thing you could as an immortal in the ancient world, and sent an eagle into the sky. The eagle seized a swan and found itself mobbed by other birds until eventually it gave up and dumped the swan further along in a river and flew away. The men of Italy were thrilled at the sight, of course. Jupiter must surely be on their side. Tolumnius, a Rutulian augur, who, for those of you, you know, basically, if you don't know what an augur is, this is like a religious figure in the ancient world, a bit like a priest, but they have that special job of reading omens and making predictions. He ran forward and he cried out, Yes! This is it! The gods are with us! Follow me into battle! We are the birds that will attack the great stranger and drive him from our skies! Tolumnius then hurled his spear into the heart of the enemy and the peace was lost and everything went to shit then, didn't it? Because of course he happened to kill a bloke with eight brothers who all rushed therefore into battle to kickstart everything on the Trojan side. I mean, eight brothers, what are the chances? The Trojans and Latins were united in their one passion to settle their problems with arms. Missiles filled the sky in a rain of steel the sacrificial objects were very quickly carried away and Latinus had to be removed to safety. Mesopus, a bloke who existed purely to wreck treaties and quite enjoyed them, and we've come across him before and he's just a bit of a pain in the arse to be honest, charged into battle and had an Etruscan king killed and stripped of his armour while the body was still warm. The men were ruthless in their bloodshed. They set each other on fire, they bit each other's heads in two with axes. I'm not exaggerating, guys. It was absolute carnage. And then there was Aeneas, still without his helmet, in the middle of it all, absolutely horrified and not really sure how this had all happened. Stop! Stop it! We made a treaty! What are you all doing? It's just meant to be me and Turnus all shitting Hades! Well... He was yelling. An arrow came out of nowhere and struck him. Virgil never, by the way, explicitly says where the arrow hit him, but I reckon it was probably on his leg because it wounded him enough to stop fighting, but not enough to do any major damage. And there's implications that he's limping, so I imagine it hit him kind of on one of his legs or the thigh, that kind of thing. Also, we have no idea who shot him, but I wouldn't want to admit to that either, really, would you? Of course seeing Aeneas leave the battlefield was all Turnus needed to spur him on. 
like Mars, drenched in blood as he rages across the river Hebrus, stirring up war, surrounded by fear, anger and treachery. Just so did Turnus explode into battle, trampling the bodies of the enemies he cut down, lashing his horses into a sweat. He crushed hero after nameless hero, including Eumedes, the son of Dolon, who had once asked for the chariot of Achilles as a reward for spying on the Greeks during the Trojan War. Turnus struck him down from miles away across the plain, and as he wrenched the spear from Eumedes' body, one foot pressing down on his chest, Turnus spat on him. Enjoy the fields of Hesperia, you so dearly wanted from close quarters. We'll build cities out of your bodies. He was unstoppable, like the north wind pursuing the waves on the ocean shore, or forcing the clouds to take flight. So Turnus was endless, relentless, and his enemy had no choice but to give way before him. Aeneas, meanwhile, was fuming. He'd been taken limping back to camp by Menestheus and Achates, and Ascanius met him in sheer terror, but all Aeneas kept doing was tugging on the arrow, which really can't have been pleasant, and demanding he needed to get back to battle as soon as possible. Iapix was basically the camp doctor. He was adored by Apollo, who is the god of music and healing, in case you didn't know. Apollo offered Iapix all his gifts, but Iapix had no interest in playing the lyre, and anyway, he was tone deaf. And he chose the quieter powers of healing in order to save his own father's life. Therefore, we can imagine Iapix now, an old man with his robes tied up around him in the fashion of Apollo the healer, trying all his magical herbs in vain whilst Eulus panicked and Aeneas muttered furiously, surrounded by a throng of anxious warriors. All of his efforts were fruitless. The arrow would not come free. Apollo would not help. The pain did not subside, and all the while the battle was raging nearer and nearer, and the shouting was growing louder. Luckily, Venus was on hand, and having had quite enough of watching her son suffer for absolutely no reason, she picked up some purple dittany from Mount Ida and added it to the healing water of Iapix, making sure no mortals could see her, of course. She added some ambrosia too, you know, for, like, vitamin C. Iapix used this water to bathe the wound and, as if by magic, it healed itself immediately. Dear Jove, get your armour back on, lad. Iapix stood back, a bit horrified and a bit amazed. The gods are on your side. I've never seen anything like it. Aeneas didn't need telling twice. He was already buckling up his breastplate, and once he was totally kitted out, he knelt to kiss Ascanius through the helmet, lightly on his forehead. Listen to me, Ascanius. He lifted the helmet slightly to get a better look at his son, and crouched down to his level. I can't teach you about the fates but I can show you what can be won through bravery and persistence. When you are a man yourself, with your own kingdom, think of me 
and your Uncle Hector, won't you? So, you know in a cartoon, right, when a huge monster is coming and the ground shakes and all the people tremble and look like they're going to pass out from fear, yeah? Well, that is the entrance Aeneas had when he returned to battle. Even Jaterna ran to hide for a bit, right? Aeneas came with his army, each man shoulder to shoulder in united formation, like when a cloud blots out the sun and farmers shudder to know the destruction it will bring and when they hear the sound of the winds on shore. The Trojans slaughtered every man in sight. The tables turned. That annoying augur, Tolumnius, was killed, but Aeneas waited. He was looking for Turnus, and only Turnus. Those were the terms to which he had agreed. Jaterna had had enough of this madness, and so she did the only thing she deemed sensible, and her judgement is really quite debatable in this, but anyway. She sees Turnus's chariot, chucked out the bloke who normally drove it, right, took on his appearance, and then clattered all around the field with Turnus in the back, and basically no one noticed. She decided, ultimately, that no one else could be trusted to keep her brother safe. Aeneas was desperately trying to keep up, of course, but Jaterna just teased him, offering glimpses of Turnus here and there all over the battlefield. There's no point, really, trying to keep up with the goddess. He had no chance. Aeneas paused, trying to decide what to do, and as he crouched behind his shield, Messippus lobbed a spear at him that took off the lovely plume from the top of his helmet. For the love of Minerva, Aeneas muttered as Messippus cheered somewhere in the distance. He was furious. He was being given no choice. He had no chance of getting Turnus alone, not without getting killed himself first. He'd done all he could to keep the peace. He was going to have to break the treaty. Aeneas sighed and offered up a prayer, probs more of a plea, really, if we think about it, to Jupiter before launching into the thick of battle. He got Mars on his side, though, guys, you know, so it's all good. Name after name, brother after son after husband, did Turnus and Aeneas kill in equal measure that day. Aeneas was knocking the sons of kings flying with boulders, while Turnus was shoving spears through brains. I'm not joking. Read it. There was no respite. Like fires that start in different places of a forest, or foaming rivers that sweep away everything in their path to the ocean, so Aeneas and Turnus seethed through the battle. Venus, again, kept sneaking glances down at the battle when she thought no one else on Olympus was noticing, and she put it into Aeneas's mind to attack Latium, and therefore confuse the Latins. So Aeneas suddenly noticed, while scouring the plains for Turnus, that the city stood out untouched and quite peaceful, at contrast with the violence around it. He called together his men. Quick! I swear, the gods are on our side. We are so close now, guys. Sod Turnus. He's taking the piss and we haven't got all day. The Latins are the one who broke the treaty and they should have to pay. Go for the kingdom. The Trojans rushed forward to attack Latium. 
They surrounded the walls, found ladders, attacked the guards at the gates and began to bombard the city with missiles. Remember what I told you, Latinus, Aeneas called out. I gave you my word. Your men broke the treaty. Your men have forced me to attack. You've brought all of this on yourself and left me no choice. The gods know I only wanted peace. The Latins were thrown into disorder. Some of them rushed to defend the walls, while others demanded they let the Trojans in and maybe even offered Latinus up for good measure. As when a beehive is filled with smoke and the bees rush in all directions, desperate to find safety, so the Latins were in turmoil. Queen Amata watched her beloved kingdom fall from the rooftops of the palace. She deduced that Turnus must have been killed in battle, and therefore, true to her word, she hung herself. The news of her suicide rippled through the city like a current. Lavinia and Latinus were left dazed, horrified, as they watched their world crumble around them. Back on the battlefield, Turnus was still listlessly chasing after a few stragglers. He was a bit fed up though now. It all felt rather anticlimactic. And what was that noise coming from the city? Did you hear that? He forced the chariot to stop. What's going on? Oh, nothing, nothing. Jaterna tried to force the chariot around. Let's go this way. I think I see some more Trojans. Jaterna, I know it's you. Turnus rolled his eyes. Why are you doing this to me? Do you want me to be disgraced? I've lost all my friends. I've literally lost everyone I actually care about. Do you want me just to stand by and watch my home burn too? Why are all of you gods so keen to have me portrayed as some shitting coward? I can only hope Hades will be a little more generous. Before Jaterna could speak, Sarkes, a Latin, rode towards them. He charged desperately through the enemy and persevered despite a wound to the face. Turnus! Turnus! Oh, thank Juno, we need you! You are all we have left. You are our only hope. No pressure, but you are literally our only option. Aeneas and his men have destroyed the city. The queen has killed herself. The king is at a loss. We're totally outnumbered. I've left Mesopus and Atenus literally holding the fort. What are you even doing out here? Sarkes looked around. The field surrounding them was totally deserted. Turnus was frozen to the spot, thunderstruck. Amata was dead. The city was falling, all because of him. All at that moment he was filled with a bitter shame, with madness, with courage, with pure, unadulterated grief and love for the one thing in that city that he had left. Lavinia, FYI. He forced himself to look, to really look, finally, at the city. The kingdom was ablaze. The towers he himself had helped build were falling. 
This is it, Jaterna. He put his hand over hers. The fates have had their say. I must go and meet Nias and my fortune in battle. Allow me my final glory. This is madness, but before I die, I beg you, let me be mad. And with that, he leapt from the chariot and raced through his enemies, through their weapons, to Latium, leaving his sister behind. Just as a boulder comes hurtling down from a mountain with immense force, so Turnus shattered through the ranks of dead men, of Trojans, towards his blood-soaked home. Enough! He screamed as he tore through the gates. Enough! Let us stop this. This is my fight. Mine and Aeneas's alone. No one else's. Aeneas could not have been more delighted than if you told him this had all been a really bad dream. He practically leapt for joy, though Virgil reminds us that he was roughly the same size as a mountain. I find this very hard to imagine, by the way, but I really shouldn't shatter the illusion for you all, so let's just carry on. All the men, relieved, though they'd actually, you know, they'd changed their tune now from the beginning, haven't they? Anyway, shook off their armour, keen to see the real fight finally begin. Even Latinus was curious to see these two great heroes from apparently opposing ends of the earth, though I think that's a bit of an exaggeration on Virgil's part, but anyway, come together for his kingdom. As two bulls deal blow upon blow against one another, watched by nervous herds and even more nervous herdsmen, just so did Aeneas of Troy and Turnus son of Dornus battle it out against one another, their armour clashing like thunder. In Olympus, Jupiter himself sat between Juno and Venus, which can't really have been very comfortable, but anyway, and he took out a set of scales. What are you doing? Venus asked. Oh, uh, just <laughs> weighing up their chances, Jupiter replied. Juno smacked him and the scales probably shattered. Thinking he was in the clear, Turnus aimed a strike at Aeneas, but somehow his sword broke mid-blow and left him defenceless and just holding the handle. The sword had belonged to his chariot rider, the real one, by the way, not his sister. Do you remember when he rushed out to battle earlier and I mentioned that the sword that he was meant to have was made by Hephaestus for his father. Well, he'd actually left that in the chariot, bless him. So he just got this random mortal one. And really, what chance would the bog standard sword have against one made by Vulcan that Aeneas had anyway? Turnus tried to escape, of course, but the Trojans hemmed him in between a marsh and the city walls. Like a hunting dog that has caught a stag galloping this way and that, but unable to shake the pursuer off, just so was Aeneas chasing Turnus, ablaze with fury and still going despite the agony from his wound that occasionally caused his legs to stumble. Give me your sword, Turnus yelled to any of the Rutulians he passed. For Jove's sake, give me your sword! 
If you give him your sword, I'll kill you and your whole bloody city in one go. Aeneas roared over him. Rightly so, and understandably, the Vertullians didn't give Turnus their swords. The two chased each other in circles at least five times. They were competing for the life of Turnus, remember. This was no small victory. Nearby, there was an olive tree dedicated to Faunus. The Trojans had cleared this to make way for battle, and unfortunately, Aeneas got his spear stuck in the sacred trunk. Seizing his chance, Turnus prayed to Faunus to help him, and sure enough, Aeneas was left fighting with the tree for quite some time. The Trojans and Latins probably had a tea break around this point. Juturna, as one last effort, changed back into the guise of Turnus's charioteer so she could pass him a sword, and in sheer retaliation, Venus wrenched Aeneas' spear free for him. The battle could continue. If we cut to Olympus, Juno and Jupiter were watching events on the TV in their bedroom. Jupiter sighed. Juno, honey, you know I adore you. More than all the nymphs I've slept with combined. But where does this end? What do you really think you can achieve here? You know Aeneas's fate as well as I do. You know you're only prolonging Turnus' suffering and your own by sending Juturna down there. You've done a fantastic job. And trust me, you've made your point. But you must stop now. Enough. Juno, who had her head on Jupiter's chest, pulled the duvet around her shoulders and turned away from the screen. Fine. You have your way. But give me one small thing. You know you owe me. Lose the name. Troy. Trojan. I can't stand it. Let there be Latium. Alba Longa, Rome, sure, but no more bloody Troy. I love it when you're angry. Jupiter turned off the TV. Whatever you want. They're all the same to me anyway. As Juno fell asleep, Jupiter pondered another matter. How to get rid of sodding Juturna? There were a couple of evil monsters called the Dirai, or Dira for singular, that Jupiter kept in the palace to set plagues or mass death in motion in the mortal world, you know, when he felt like it. They had snakes for hair, naturally, and wings, so I'm sure they looked absolutely delightful. He ordered one of these charming daughters of night to confront Juturna as an omen. And so the Dira whirled like an arrow through darkness, unseen, and settled in the form of a small bird pecking again and again at Turnus's head. Aside from how absolutely infuriating this must have been, um, a strange paralysing fear kind of took over Turnus, and he found himself horror-struck to the spot. Juturna, of course, saw the Dira for what it really was, and she burst into tears. Damn you, Jupiter. You take my virginity. You take my mortality. And now you're taking my brother too. 
what is the point of my existence, of my powers, if I cannot save him? Seriously, I've had it. And then, without saying goodbye, as you would expect after that kind of outburst, but anyway, she leapt into a river, if you remember, river goddess, so that's like her home, anyway. Come on, Turnus! We forget that Aeneas and Turnus are actually still chasing each other in circles at this point. This isn't a race. Stop hiding and face me like a man. I'm not scared of you, Aeneas. Only the gods could scare me now. Which is actually ironic when we think about it, uh, guys. But anyway, there was a rock nearby that previously not even 12 men could lift. Turnus picked this up, of course, and he aimed it at Aeneas, but it didn't really happen. Everything seemed to be in slow motion or like he was moving through water. Or was it just him that was slowing down? The stone rolled away and Turnus's knees felt weak. He was dizzy. Like in a dream, when you're desperately trying to run or move, but your body won't do anything at all, or when you try to scream and no sound will come out. So Turnus could go no further. The Diver had made sure of that. There was no way out. Nowhere to go. No sister to help him. Turnus began to falter. He knew what was coming. Aeneas wasted no time in launching his spear, heavy with the weight of death and destruction, putting his whole force behind the effort. No thunderbolt has ever been so loud as that spear that pierced all the way through the shield, the armour and the flesh of Turnus. He fell to the ground, defeated, the wound striking his thigh, and around them the Rutulians groaned. I asked for this. I know. Turnus lowered his eyes and raised a hand in supplication to Aeneas. I asked for nothing. End this here. You've won. Give me back to my father. Let's end this hatred here. Aeneas hesitated. He had never wanted to kill Turnus. He had never wanted to kill anyone. He began to lower his sword, but as he did, he noticed the baldric, Pallas's baldric, that Turnus had stripped from the boy and now so proudly boasted. The sight of this reminded Aeneas of his own maddening grief, of everything he had lost, and he glowered at Turnus. You think you can escape me now, after all you have done, after all the suffering that you have caused? This is for Pallas. And then Aeneas blazing with rage, raised his arms and struck Turnus in the heart. And so Turnus collapsed in the dust, 
and his spirit faded away down into the shades of the underworld. The End <laughs>